Well, this morning as we begin, I'd like to read these verses from Psalm 25. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindnesses, for they have been from old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your loving kindness, you've heard a lot about that word, haven't we, in the last several Sundays in church. Remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Father, we know that your loving kindness never ceases. We know that your mercy is renewed every morning. We know that your faithfulness is great. And so, Lord, we proclaim these things this day. We proclaim you our King and Lord. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to be faithful subjects to your authority and to your reign, to your love and to your mercy. Because we know, Lord, you are a totally benevolent ruler, one who doesn't rule for your sake, but you rule for the sake of those that you have created. Everything that you bring into our lives is for a good purpose for the purpose of bringing us into submission to your authority so that you might pour out your blessings upon us. So often we miss the blessing, Father, because we insist on going our own way. Forgive us. Help us. Lord, I pray that you will instruct us through your word this day. And Lord, I ask that your presence will be felt in the service that is concurrent and all the other Sunday school classes this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the 15th chapter of 2 Samuel. We had begun this chapter two weeks ago, so let me read again the first six verses, and then we'll pick up from there. Now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And it happened when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And he would say, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has a suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And it happened that when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. And in this manner, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom was indignant over having to have spent years in exile and years in banishment from the court of the king as a result of his assassination of his elder brother Amnon. And so what we find here, because, of course, he felt that his assassination was just and that he was, in fact, carrying out justice as a result. And so what we discover in this passage is he launches a subtle campaign to seize power in Jerusalem. It's hard for us, I think, because most of us have, if, if we've uh, spent much time in the church and read the scripture very much, we, we tend to have a bit of an elevated view of David. <coughs> Uh, particularly if you've ever seen uh, Michelangelo's David, you know, that big statue of David, you know, right at the time when he has his battle with uh, Goliath. You, you have this sense that he's a man of power, a man of authority, and of course a man 
who was the sweet singer of uh, Israel, writing so many of the Psalms for us. And it's hard to believe that anybody would attempt to overthrow such a good king, taking advantage of his natural good looks and his apparent regal appearance. I mean, uh, it, it seems that Absalom had every physical attribute that anybody dreamed a king ought to have. He then did everything possible to, to augment that impression by demonstrating splendor and authority, riding around. In, I don't think it was a common, ordinary, you know, Saturday night kind of special chariot. It was a special chariot, you know, specially adorned with, with matched horses and, and these runners that are running out in front of him, all dressed regally, you know, so that wherever he went, he, he gave an aura of authority. He sought to undercut his father's prestige by insinuating that David no longer ruled effectively. You know, David was getting up in the years by now. And that he was no longer concerned with justice in the land. That, that David didn't really concern himself with the common man and his needs and his problems. But as we read in this passage this morning, Absalom directly implies, in fact, he says, oh, that someone would give me the authority to judge in this land and I would give justice. And that's not so subtle when you think about that. He felt that he was capable of doing that. It's something scary when you think somebody who thinks he's, he or she is really, really capable of doing something. That person scares me <laughs> when it comes to doing that because generally there's no humility. Without humility, there's usually failure. We notice in this passage that he also fraternized with the people. When someone would come up to bow down to him as the son of the king and, and you know, do this uh, face on the ground deal, he would, oh, pick him up and kiss him, you know, not, not on the mouth, of course, but, you know, the, the Near Eastern uh, uh, greeting. And the, and the scripture says that by this he stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Again, as I emphasized last time, he didn't win their hearts. He stole their hearts. He stole them away. In other words, he appeared to be what he was not. Absalom was using flattery. Absalom was, was using excessive show of concern. Oh, I'm so concerned with your needs. I'm so concerned that you have justice. Such an apparent passion for justice. <laughs> Very interesting. Because to overthrow his father as king is not just. But that's what he's trying to imply here. And in the process, he's attempting to change the allegiance of Israel to change the allegiance of Israel from his father, who is known to be a godly man, to himself, who demonstrates no godliness anywhere you can read in Scripture. And as I thought about this, what came to my mind was that these are the very similar methods that are used by the cults to creep into the church. Just read the history of the church sometime and uh, look at the cults that have arisen down through time. Just, just to pick one of our modern ones, you all are familiar with those who have very conservative politics. They have a very clean-cut appearance, and they talk about family values and all the good things that come that way. And yet the Mormon church has attempted through this 
to gain an entrance into the Protestant community. They've, in effect, virtually asked to be accepted as a Protestant denomination, trying to de-emphasize the differences and emphasize any similarities that might exist. Paul dealt directly with this kind of an idea, and let me read a passage that is not unfamiliar to most of you, but in the third chapter of Galatians, we have that uh, rather famous passage that deals with cults. Not the only one, but one of such. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and, the work, and, and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? We'll just stop there. Paul, of course, here is primarily talking about the Judaizers, those who were going around and trying to convince the new Christians amongst the Gentiles that the only way they could truly have Jesus as their Messiah is to become Jews, spiritually Jews, uh, even physically Jews, uh, first, and then they can have Jesus as their Messiah. And Paul refers to that, of course, as heresy in effect. And, and so this passage, though, has a principle in it. There's a principle in this passage which can be applied to any and all attempts to, to move people from a genuine belief in the faith of, that Jesus Christ, Christ brought, brought to some other version of it. And the principle is that if the words or the actions of an individual or a group do not line up with Scripture, they are deceivers. That's just flat out the answer. If what they teach and what they preach and what they do does not line up with Scripture, it's false, period, end of argument. The Scripture has got to be used as the rule, the canon, by which we discover the truth. And if it does not line up with it, it's false. How many people were slowly weaned away from belief in the Scripture to begin to believe in the rantings and ravings of a man by the name of Jim Jones and as a result were destroyed. How many? Thousands. We know nearly a thousand died down in Guyana alone, let alone how many others were destroyed along the way in one way, shape, or form. It's so easy to happen. They're always creeping into the church are people who want to pervert the truth. And the reason is, of course, the enemy is always at work. Satan is always trying to destroy the church. This is his primary act. As I have emphasized before, Satan isn't down on skid row helping the drunks get drunker. What, this, what Satan is doing is in the church trying to destroy the work that is happening on the cutting edge of salvation. I don't think we can count how many times this has happened through the 2,000 years of the history of the church. If you study church history, you'll find in every single century, cults arise, cults arise, deceiving many. 
and many of them have very strange names, you know, like Martianism. But others don't have such strange names, uh, names that uh, might seem very similar or familiar to us, like the social gospel. The social gospel is not bad if you have the true gospel attached to it. And that's the way it started. You go back to the middle of the 19th century and, and you had preachers of the gospel who also began to add the social element, which in many evangelical churches has been lacking. But eventually the social gospel started to move up above the gospel of Jesus Christ for salvation and it became ultimately the only gospel. And, and many of our churches in America today that used to be mainline, front-running churches, like out on the frontier, cutting edges of salvation, and, and today they're awash in the social gospel, and, and the doctrine they teach is so far from the doctrine of, of Jesus Christ as we find in Scripture. And of course, the easiest way for them to, to give uh, justification for what they do is to begin to tear down the Scripture, to attack the Scripture and to say, well, you know, the Scripture is just an eclectic collection of writings of human beings and you know, much of it probably was not even really said by, in the case of the Gospels, of Jesus Christ. You know, that's why we have this Jesus uh, seminar running around dropping different colored rocks in as to whether or not a particular passage of Scripture Jesus really said it or didn't say it or maybe said it or possibly said it or, you know, I mean. We can avoid deception only by being absolutely dedicated to our adherence to the Word of God, unashamedly attached to the Word of God and testing every spirit by the Word of God. It's got to be. What other plumb line do we have? What else do we have to compare with? In our supposedly postmodern, post-Christian world, we have this, this jello foundation. Well, whatever you think has got to be okay. You know, whatever you feel is okay. That's nothing. Absolutely nothing. Satan, interestingly enough, successfully deceived Eve in the garden by casting doubt upon what? The plain word of God. God had spoken to Adam and to Eve, and clearly they heard what he said. And then Satan comes along and says, but did he really say that? Did he really mean that? I think he's holding out on you. He implied that if she just didn't take that word too seriously, kind of ignored what God had, had said, that, that she would discover that there's a way to enter the secret hidden knowledge of God, things that he has not revealed to you yet. But it's out there, the secret knowledge of God. Gnosticism was one of the early heresies of the church, along with the Judaizers. Gnosticism is not solely the domain of Christianity. There's Gnosticism in, in many religions of the world. And the, the Gnostic heresy within Christianity, of course, emphasized secret knowledge. It's like every once in a while you get an advertisement for the lost gospels, you know. The books that were put in the Bible, but you should know them because they are the truth. Gnostic heresy shows up today in Unitarianism and Christian science in the New Age movement. So many ways it shows up because how, how appealing is that to us? To think that we have the secret inside knowledge because we belong to this particular group and have been instructed in this particular way, that puts us a cut above everybody else. You know, that's our natural human tendency is to be better than someone else. It's human pride. 
plays to that. Of course, pride is written all over Absalom. The Absaloms of our day, and there are many Absaloms out here today in America and around the world, stealing the hearts of people. But they will never deceive us if we learn and understand and obey the Word of God. And the reason is, of course, as we read in <clears throat> Psalm 119, forever, O Lord, your Word is established in heaven. The Word of God has been given to us, not as a book for the moment, but for a, as a book for eternity. It is the eternal Word of God. It cannot change because it's God's expression of His very nature and of His, of His character. And therefore, as we stick with it, we will not be led astray. The, the Jim Joneses that come along will be brushed aside and challenged for what they stand for, what they don't stand for, actually. Well, let's read on in Second uh, Samuel chapter 15 at verse 7. Now, it came about at the end of, it says 40 years, it means four, that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then 200 men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. That, that isn't a statement of total ignorance. They didn't know what he was planning at that moment. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifice. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Absalom has been about this attempted subversion now for four years. After he returned from Geshur, remember he had been in Geshur for three years. He had been then out of David's, David wouldn't allow him back into the royal center for several years. And now after David has invited him back into his presence, he's been uh, carrying out this subversion. And he now feels strong enough to make his move. Now, he needs to make good cover for himself, especially for this initial action. So he claims that he had made a vow to the Lord when he was back in Geshur, and now he has to fulfill that vow. Unsuspectingly, David sent him on his journey to Hebron in peace. David, by this time, should have been very highly suspicious of Absalom. He had many reasons to be suspicious of Absalom. For example, the length of time that had passed since he supposedly made this vow. And what we're talking about at least six years had passed since he had made this vow. So why is he now going to fulfill a vow he made six years ago? Secondly, Absalom, up to this point in time, in his whole life, had never shown any interest in seeking and obeying God. You do not find any place in Scripture that indicates that Absalom was a man whose heart was after God. Thirdly, how in the world is he going to fulfill this vow in Hebron? 
David could, could understand or should have thought, well, you know, if you made a vow, why isn't it Shiloh? Why isn't it Bethel you're going to go to? Why Hebron? I mean, it's true that that's where the cave of Machpelah was, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives were buried. And, and of course, that's where uh, Absalom was born. But, but Hebron should have just rung a bell as not being a very likely place to, to go to fulfill a vow or to go on a pilgrimage. Fourthly, how in the world could Absalom get away with such blunt as, uh, uh, assaults, if you will, on the people coming through the great gate of Jerusalem and telling him, oh, if somebody would appoint me as judge, I would be such a good judge, but oh, there's nobody to do that. And how could he get away with this for four years without it arriving in the ears of the king? How could the king not hear this? You have to realize that all kings throughout history have their spies out and about listening, trying to discover what kind of, uh, you know, what's afloat out there. So David should have had some, some inkling of the fact that his son was something less than loyal to him by this time. And then fifthly, sort of related back to the second point, since his vow was that if God brought him to Jerusalem, he would serve the Lord. <laughs> Where's the evidence? He's been in Jerusalem for several years now. Where's the evidence that he's serving the Lord? Where is the evidence? David certainly would have noted such a radical change in the life of Absalom. You and I all recognize when someone who has not been walking with the Lord is brought into a relationship and walks with the Lord. I mean, it's a radical change. It's not just some subtle minor thing. So what we have, I believe, is the possibility that David was actually ignoring warning signs. David didn't want to believe that it was possible for his son to actually be disloyal to him. Besides, I don't think David wanted to discourage his son from fulfilling a vow. Well, if you really made a vow, I don't want to discourage you from fulfilling that vow, so you, you better go ahead and uh, carry out your vow. We get some really important truth from this. Using God as an unassailable cover, how much has been done that's in violation of what God actually stands for? It's a common ploy to say, well, the Lord told me to do this or that, or to say this or that, or to believe this or that. The Lord told me. How, how do you impugn that? How do you say, oh, well, no, that can't be right. But the Lord told me. How does the Lord speak? Now, I've run across very few people who can actually honestly say the Lord said something to them other than it coming straight out of Scripture. And those who do it a lot, I really have very serious questions about. Because God has told us everything we need to know right here. You know? Especially if what the person is proclaiming as a deed or a word or an act doesn't line up with Scripture. Especially if, if it doesn't if it's challengeable by Scripture or challengeable by the spirit of Scripture. To claim God's personal leading as a cover for weakness, for ignorance, for failure, for rebellion, for a desire for power or fame, or for aberrant theology 
is a very, very dangerous thing. Because the scripture tells us that our God is a flaming fire, a consuming fire. And God is not going to allow his holy name to be, un to be attached to an unholy project without dealing with the persons involved. So it's very dangerous for anyone to say, well, God told me to do this. Well, yeah, the scripture seems to indicate otherwise, but God told me. And as you know, there are even evangelical denominations today who seem to think that the word of God is still being proclaimed today as it had been, as it is in scripture, and that you can hear new word from God that you add to the scripture in effect. That is extremely dangerous. We have Genesis to Revelation. We have Paradise Lost to Paradise Regained. What more do we need? <laughs> and, and God can, can actually speak to us about what we ought to be doing at a given moment from here. He doesn't have to thunder out of heaven and say, Oh, Joe Blow, I want you to do this because of this reason. Well, it is exactly lined up with Scripture, but this is a new word. Yeah. All new words come from the same pit. Once Absalom had been given leave here by David, he set out for Hebron. The scripture tells us he went with 200 men. <laughs> he goes down to fulfill this vow with 200 men in tow. And we're told that he immediately sent out a message all across Israel for his henchmen. We can call him that, I suppose, to launch the plan. The hour has arrived launched the plan. The revolt was to begin. What's interesting is so secret was this plan that the 200 men that were trotting along with, with Absalom didn't even know that that this was going to happen now. Maybe not. They, maybe they were just honestly committed to Absalom and weren't really thinking in terms of rebellion. But they didn't know this was D-Day, you know. What we're told in this passage is that David had a real coup here. I'm sorry, Absalom had a coup because he, he made a convert out of Ahithophel. Now, of course, the word Ahithophel means brother of foolishness, so I'm not really sure <laughs> that that was a great coup. But anyway, Ahithophel the Gilonite. Now, Gilo, its exact location is uncertain, but it's thought to have been a small village south of uh, Hebron. This is the first time Ahithophel is mentioned by name in Scripture. But what we obtain or what we gain from this is that he must have been one of David's senior counselors. And the question is, why would a man who stood with David and helped counsel him through the years of his reign up to this point now switch his allegiance to Absalom? If he truly was a wise man, why would he be sucked into Absalom's charade? Well, that's a fair question, and um, I don't know that we know any answer other than one by implication. It may be that he still harbored ill will against David for David's seduction of Bathsheba. And the reason I say that is that in the, the 23rd uh, chapter of 2 Samuel, which we haven't gotten to yet, we discover that Ahithophel was the father of Eliam. And if we go back to the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, we find that Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. So this is Bathsheba's grandfather, apparently. 
So you can understand why he might be, oh yeah, I'm, I'm counseling David here, but I could poke the guy out <laughs> if I really had an opportunity. So, you know, people are able to do that. They're able to put on the good face and seem like they're your friend, but you give them a chance in a dark room with a dagger and, and you're a dead man. And so it seems that for whatever reason, and, and that may not be the reason, he simply decided to side with Absalom. Whatever the case, he is a major plus to Absalom's cause because he's a high-ranking man. He's, he's a man of high status. He would be, he'd be recognized by the people of, of Israel as one of the king's counselors. And of course, theoretically, he was a man of wisdom. And of course, he was a man who would have some intimate knowledge of David. David's thinking, David's practices, what David might be planning. So this would be a good man to have on your camp. Be like having one of the assistant coaches from the other team join your team just before the game is to take place. It's probably a little more than a coincidence that Ahithophel happened to be at Gilo making a sacrifice at the time that Absalom takes his men down to Hebron because Gilo, if it, if it truly is south, and that's what most believe, most uh, believe that Gilo was located south. As, as I mentioned to you before, unless a village, particularly if it's a village, unless a village name is carried on in the later Arabic name of, of the community, and unless a site can actually be found and archaeologically probed, it's pretty hard to prove the locations of many, many of the towns and names mentioned in Scripture. We have a general idea about many of them, but not an absolute idea of, of some. Uh, but, but if Gilo was south of Hebron, this way when the, when the rebellion broke out, Ahithophel could come up from Gilo to Hebron and check it out and see how the rebellion is going. And if it looks like it's gaining strength, then he can add his, his weight to it. But if it looks like it's going to fizzle out, he can just break himself free from it and never appear guilty because he was down making a sacrifice in Gilo, and that's why he wasn't in Jerusalem counseling the king at that particular time. Not that he was a part of this aborted coup. Well, as it turns out, of course, the coup won't be aborted. In the short run, it won't anyway. And, and so he does join himself uh, to, to the plot. The groundwork was well laid. Absalom was, was a man of considerable brilliance. He was a man of tremendous following. And so the tentacles of, of his insurrection had reached throughout the land. And at the appointed hour, there was an outbreak all over the land against the reign of David. 2 Samuel 5.13 Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Think about that for a minute. We, we just read over that verse, but think of the impact that had on David. Every ruler, well, I shouldn't say every, but most rulers want to be loved by their people. They want to be respected by their people. Well, there are, there are some who have said, I'd rather be feared than loved. <laughs> well, I think David really, from what we know of his character, wanted to be loved and respected by his people. And so here this, this blow, this word comes that your own son Absalom has raised up a standard against you. It could have been a crushing blow for David. And David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly 
and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him. But the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people with him. And they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him, all the Carathites and the, all the Pelathites and all the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath, passed on before the king. Tragic hour for David. David had been ruling for many, many years in Jerusalem and certainly had settled into a degree of security, of enjoying his position as ruling monarch in the land. The borders had been secured over, after years of warfare. An empire had been built. And, and certainly the last thing he needed in his relatively old age now was to have to flee his capital and leave everything behind, uh, all the physical things behind, uh, like his you know, possessions and the royal palace. And uh, he took all the people with him except 10 concubines and, uh, and, and to flee. How humiliating to flee from your royal capital because your own son has raised a rebellion against you. But to some extent, it was David's own fault. He had failed to take precautions against the gathering storm. He couldn't have been totally blind to this. I, I just can't imagine it. I think he simply didn't want it to happen, couldn't believe it was happening. He didn't think that Absalom would rebel against his own father. After all, Absalom apparently looked a whole lot like David. We think of David as a, as a handsome man, a regal man, and, and Absalom seemed to be cut out of his own father's uh, material. It could be that his complacence up to this time came from the fact that he knew God had given him the throne and that God would keep him on the throne and God would protect him as he ruled and that God would transfer the throne to his son and to his son's sons on down through time. Whatever the case, he was forced to flee ignominiously. First, he had to flee to save himself. He had no assurances that the population of Jerusalem would rise up and stand for him and, and barrier, bar the walls and hold off any attacker. He didn't know that. Second of all, he didn't want the city to be subjected to siege or attack. He didn't want his royal city to have blood flowing in the streets between, in, in a civil war. He cared about his people. And so he decided that if he left town, the city would be spared. And if Absalom's going to prevail, Absalom could walk into the city without a life being taken in the process. David's frantic instructions that are given in verse 14 as we read, and he, as he said, arise and flee and, and so forth in that verse, probably stem from the fact that he remembered. He remembered the words of Nathan the prophet after Nathan had confronted him concerning his sin with Bathsheba. Let me just remind you, your pure hearts, of those words. In 2 Samuel 12, we read at verse 10, Now therefore the sword, this is Nathan speaking to David as a result of his murder of uh, Uriah and his, and his adultery with Bathsheba. He says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. 
I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. And that is not just figuratively speaking, as we will see. He left his ten concubines behind, and, you know, scripturally a concubine is a wife, as far as God's uh, concerned. And so this, this will actually be fulfilled publicly by Absalom in his all-out attempt to, keep, to take the throne. Absalom did everything he could to obtain power. And it reminds me, uh, I think I mentioned this to you before, of why the communists killed Tsar Nicholas II and his wife and all five of his children. They killed him to guarantee that everybody who was part of the Bolshevik Revolution would stick to the task and make sure they won because if they lost, they were all going to be executed for having killed the Tsar and his whole family. It's a burning your bridges behind you kind of deal. And that's what happens when Absalom decides to, to in effect, rape David's ten concubines in broad daylight uh, to, to, to just basically burn all the bridges. It's, you know, we're all into this, guys, now. I either rule as king or we're all dead kind of idea. And it's, it's a fulfillment exactly of what the Lord had prophesied through Nathan. And I'm sure those thoughts now came to David's mind. David, why didn't you see it before? But now he sees it and, and now he knows he needs to flee. And so he said to his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. He saw now the reality of the prophecy being carried out in front of his own eyes. Well, we better, we better stop at that point.